Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, it's one of my very favorite formats to produce and to be a part of. It is a coaching roundtable discussion with some of our fantastic CTS coaches. And I decided to pick a topic that is going to be extremely relevant for most of the audience listening today. So on the podcast today, I got a group of coaches together to discuss what we are doing with our athletes that have races in the next six to eight weeks, maybe even 10 weeks out. And what training themes and themes overall are emerging with our athlete base. So I got together with coaches AJW, coach Corinne Malcolm, and coach Michelle Foster, all of whom have been previous guests on this podcast. You longtime listeners will definitely remember those names. And we go through from a very practical point of view what we are doing with our athletes who have races coming up in the next several weeks for the here and now. And I think what you will find extremely interesting within this podcast is it's not all about the training X's and O's. Yes, we go through some of that. What types of workouts should you be doing? How you should arrange your volume and intensity? But much of what we talk about are the things outside of your daily training run that you can do to get prepared for the races that are coming up. As always, I had a ton of fun during the course of this conversation. I love talking with our coaches. They're so bright, they're always on point, and they provide a wealth of experience, not only to their athletes, but to the listeners of this podcast. So with that as a backdrop, I'm getting right out of the way. Here's my conversation with a group of CTS coaches all about how to prepare for the races that are right in front of you. So the race season is here. Um, I just got reminded of this cause I went through a race and as you guys know, I try to arrange my race season so that I don't race at any point in time when my athletes are racing cause I like hate doing it, which means I have to pick obscure things. But, um, the, the, the important point with that is, is I had to go through this process with myself about two or three months ago in terms of what to do during this last phase of training, whether it's from a training perspective or whether it's from like a logistical or operational perspective, or even getting kind of your crew on board to make sure that I could, you know, kind of succeed in this race. And now it's coming full circle with the athletes that I work with, where it's almost kind of taking that blueprint and then phase shifting it forward a few months. So what I wanted to do during this podcast is hear from all of y'all since you've got a, you know, each of you have a good stable of athletes and they're all going through this, 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 uh, this, this race transition phase where they're starting to race in May, June, July, August, in terms of what you are doing with your athletes and what are some of like the most common themes that are getting pulled out of that. So the audience can kind of learn from that and go, oh, okay, this is what I need to start thinking about right here, right now, since I've got a race six weeks down the line, eight weeks down the line and things like that. I just came up with another one just during that intro that I just made up. So I'm going to go over that too. All right. So Andy, you're going to kick us off. What are you going through with your athletes right now as they're entering the race season? Thanks, Coop. Great to be on again, by the way. Uh, hi, Michelle. Hi, Corinne. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to share a little tale of two athletes. Uh, if you don't mind, I have two athletes. I'm not going to use their names. They're both, they're both in Western States. Uh, 41 year old female uh, from Kentucky who was selected 
by raffle ticket at last year's um, pre-race meeting. So she's known for an entire year she's in Western states. That's a big build versus, up. <laughs> uh, right, versus a 58-year-old male who lives in the Sacramento area uh, who also has known he's been in, in the race for a long time because he's a very, very active member of the Sacramento Buffalo Chips running club that hosts the um, Devil's Thumb Aid Station, and he has the aid station spot in Western states. I've been working with both these athletes since about December. And uh, right now, I am on the one hand with the 41-year-old female from uh, Kentucky trying to keep her calm, and with the 58-year-old male who practically lives on the course try and make sure he realizes that this is a big deal. Uh, he has, <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's a very experienced runner, but he's run Western States exactly once, which was 17 years ago in 2005. He has one other hundred miler, which is Rio del Lago in 2017. So while he's an experienced runner, experienced racer, he's a relatively inexperienced hundred miler. Um, uh, my, uh, my runner from Kentucky has exactly one hundred mile finish at the 2021 burning river hundred. So the training has been very, uh, traditional Western States with some, some speed work and VO two max in the late winter and building into tempo in March, both of them did 50 K tune up races and then 50 milers or hundred Ks. And so they're coming down to the wire, uh, in their training training. Um, the gentleman from Sacramento will be able to go to the uh, Western States training camp and he'll have, he already has knowledge of the course. Uh, the 41 year old from Kentucky, unfortunately can't, she has a wedding that weekend. So she's doing her uh, modified Western States training camp the weekend before in Kentucky. So I have one athlete, uh, who's never seen the course before and will only see the course on race day and another athlete who knows the course, like the back of his hand. And so working with these two athletes and their goals has been a real strong theme of the last month. I, uh, oddly enough, the gentleman from Sacramento is really worried about the heat. He's doing a lot in the sauna, starting his sauna protocol right now. The, the woman from Kentucky is not at all worried about the heat. They have plenty of heat out there. Uh, she's worried about the course and the climbing and so forth. So what I'm the, the mess, I guess the takeaway is I'm talking about managing as Corinne and I have talked about before managing the hype or lack of hype of a big race like this. Not getting, we're recording this in mid-May. It's still five and a half weeks from Western states. So there's still a fair bit of training to be done. So taking care of doing the training, taking care of the logistics. Uh, my, my woman from Kentucky has everything dialed in, Pacers crew, everything else. The gentleman from the area is like, oh, I still got time to figure that out. So it's a little bit of a challenge. And it's actually one of the reasons I think it's really nice to have a coach because we can work with different athletes in different ways. And I can assure you that with these two, there's no like cookie cutter recipe that, uh, that, that they're doing. It's, it's really different and really unique. And this is where managing the training with managing all the other stuff that goes around getting ready for a big summer race is really a balancing act the enthusiasm could be a blessing and a curse right i mean mm -hmm. we've seen this uh time and time and time again in training where 
you get athletes that are extremely enthusiastic about getting into a race. And normally it's those bucket list races. It's the UTMBs, it's the Western States, the hard rock, and they don't want to screw it up. Right. And their, their tool that they decide to deploy to not screw it up is usually copious amounts of volume. <laughs> they just want to run and run and run and they just can't, they can't do enough long runs. They want to do hundred K long run, 70 mile long run, like all these kind of things. And, and, and you're, and you're right, Andy, that in those cases, having a coach to balance that out or to make sure that the appropriate amount of load is distributed on the athlete is, is, uh, uh, is, is the right way to go. But enthusiasm can also be a curse in the opposite way where you don't have it. It's rare to have it at a bucket list type of race like Western States where it's rare not to have it, I guess is what I should say at a bucket list type of race like Western States. Cause normally you're like for every nine athletes, you're tempering them down and maybe one athlete you're having to like pump them, pump them up for it. So it's an, so it's an interesting tale. And I'm wondering like, how did that, like, how did that even come about <laughs> other than the fact that he lives near the course and, I think, I think part of it is his own, his, and this is part of the interesting thing about working with this athlete. I think part of it's his own psychology where he doesn't want to get too mm. caught up in, in over being overly enthusiastic. Um, he wants to follow the training plan. He wants to um, do what's right, but he doesn't want to get ahead of himself. I don't think he hasn't said this, but this is my interpretation. He doesn't want to get ahead of himself. Um, you know, he's doing silver state this weekend. So he's, that's relatively late in the game to do a 50 mile race, but that's something that he's done quite a bit. He loves the race. It's, it's up there in Reno. It's a, it's a beautiful course and so forth. So he's coming up, he's coming at it a little bit differently than someone who might put all of their eggs in that basket. But it's also, I mean, he's a 58-year-old guy, so not only does he have a fair bit of running experience, but he has a fair bit of life experience. I should also add, too, that he's currently unemployed. He's on a leave of absence from his job. So he can pretty much devote as much time as he wants to this uh, endeavor, whereas my my athlete in Kentucky has a full-time job with the Nature Conservancy. It's stressful. It's She's out in the field a lot. So there's it's an interesting compare-contrast. So I, I don't want it to seem like the, 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 the athlete from the area is unenthusiastic. I think he's just tempering and dosing out his enthusiasm. Um, and, and it's probably going to help him and keep him calm when it comes to race day. I hope. I, I actually think that from a training perspective, that's kind of the best setup. He's got all the time in the world, but he doesn't have all the enthusiasm in the world. And those kind of like offset each other to a certain extent, right? Because when you have all the time in the world to train, we see this with elite athletes all the time, right? When you have all the time in the world to train and you're highly motivated to train, that can actually be super toxic in terms of just doing too, like too much, right? I mean, it's really easy to do, to do too much when, when you're not limited by time, especially in the sport. Andy, you mentioned something else about the Western States training camp that I want to bring up. So you've got these two athletes. One of them is doing the training camp, but the other one is doing a, a, a semi or a, or a copy paste of the Western States training camp at the same period of time. How often for this particular race are you using that specific 
time frame to do one of those training camps and just to, you can probably give the you can probably give a better overview of it but that but the western states training camp is always over memorial day weekend which leaves a certain amount of space to the race do you find that as a really uh like a conducive setup for that type of training bump and leading into the race i think i i, I most most of the time um, you know, when I, when I, when I mapped out long range plans for my, my, what, 14 or so athletes that are doing hundred milers sometime, we are, we're talking about the window, right. From June to August. So when I think of the 14 athletes I have right now who are doing hundred milers between June and August for all of them, I, in the initial long range plan suggested a three day training camp preferably on the course, but if not on the course, if that's prohibitive, somewhere similar to the course, uh, between four and six weeks out from the race. Um, you know, the, the, the mileage of the Western States training camp is, is 70 miles. You know, you, you do, you do the last 70 miles of the course spread over three days. That training camp can vary from, you know, 60 miles to 75 miles, but I really like the idea of the, of the three days. Um, and in fact, I've even tweaked it a little bit more this year where, Day day one is kind of a long day in the mountains, time on your feet, social time, eating and drinking. Day two is a little bit more up tempo, a little bit a little bit more less wasting time at the aid stations, you know, kind of. And then day three is, you know, seeing what you have left in the tank and um and running running on tired legs if you will and i find particularly for athletes i happen to have a five athletes in the western states 100 this year who are not from the area who are going to be seeing the course for the first time on memorial day weekend it's very helpful for them to get out there to see the course to experience it not in a race environment and so i think both physically and even more psychologically that sort of three-day um camp makes sense and i've seen you you do you can do it in the last you know sort of the latter part of june for hard rock uh, often around labor day weekend for wasatch or some of the ones that go into september so it's kind of it's kind of nice if the people can afford the time to do that and what's the multiple i'm always curious about this because we have our own you know or we have had in the past our own memorial day camp here out in colorado springs What's the multiple in terms of their daily volume? How much does it go up during the camp? Oh, a, a, a lot, a, a lot, right? I mean, they they might have. So let's take someone who's someone who's going to Memorial Day next weekend. You know, they they might be running a you know a seven hour long run this Saturday, but but maybe not much more than two hours or so on yeah. Sunday. So their volume's going to increase. Their their biggest volume week is going to be that week that ends with the Memorial Day training camp. Yeah. Um, and I think volume depends on the athlete. I have some quote unquote high volume athletes. I have some lower volume athletes. But in general, it would I would give it a percent. It might be as much as 20% more than their next biggest volume week so far. Yeah. So sometimes from like peak to trough, we'll see like two to three X coming into our camp where, 
you know, they might only that do would be like, a lot. yeah, <laughs> but you, I mean, logically, this is what's always been fascinating to me about the camp setup. You'd never prescribe that, not never, but you'd really rarely prescribe that in training unless you had the camp set up where you get to remove all of the other training stress and you've got the addition of the aid stations and the camaraderie and kind of you're setting the time aside and all those other things where you can replace some of that stress that's removed with, with running stress. And I'm always, I don't know why I should be shocked year after year because I've seen it so many times. I'm just always shocked at how well people absorb that much of an, that much of an increase. And interestingly enough, like when I talked to some of our like international colleagues, like I think uh, Guy Millet, who's been on the podcast before, he mentioned this when we were just talking offline. He's like, oh yeah, we do this all the time. Like in Europe, weekend comes around and it's six hours, whatever during the week, it's one hour of whatever. And he's like, we just, we can handle it. And we don't know why it seems stupid on paper, but for whatever reason, we can actually, we can actually handle it. Um, is there I think, any- the, I think the other, the other thing I'd just like to add before we move on is I also think it's really, it's a really great, um, time to take care of, you know, the shoes you're going to wear in the race yes. and the nutrition you're going to take in. And if you're going to wear a pack or use handhelds or, or use poles or, you know, to get all of those kinds of variables taken care of over this three day period is really, really helpful. Uh, you know, in, in sort of removing those questions when you get closer to the race. Here's the key with that. I'm so glad you mentioned it is there's time to course correct. If you screwed it up, like if you have, if you do something on one of these long runs or, or during this camp, nutrition wise, equipment wise, or whatever that you have then decided you are not going to use during the race, you generally have enough time to find an alternative solution, to find a new pack, to find a new pair of shoes, to find a new lube combination or kind of like whatever, like whatever it is. If you're doing that two weeks before the race, that would, that's typically what puts you in trouble because then you end up, you know, doing the proverbial, don't do anything new on race day. You're kind of forced into that position or you've like backed yourself into a corner where you actually have to do that. So I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that, that it's an opportunity, not just to reap all the physical pieces of this, but in addition to that, look at some of the equipment choices, look at some of the nutrition choices that you're making and things like that, and get that ironed out as well. It's never going to be the same during the race, but you got to, it's your closest proxy possible. Sweet. Okay. We're going to move on to Michelle. Michelle, what are you going through with your athletes? I know you've got a lot of athletes that just raced recently. What are you going, what, so you can either take us back in time or you can go forward to the future. So you guys actually got into a little bit what I was just going to get into about all the gear and things like that. Um, I have some athletes that are going into some mountain races and time where they're going to be out all night or at least most of the night. And it's kind of a change from those maybe 12 hour day races. Um, so like right now, like with the poles and the lights and all, and just, I mean, if you're not the people out there winning the race, you've got some time between aid stations. You're going to be carrying more on your back that you might not be used to. And if you do all of that on race day, that's going to be a lot to take in and just fumbling around and trying to use it. Like, I don't know how many people are like, I hate poles because they use them for one run and they're <laughs> tripping over them and I love them, but I use them as much as I get a chance to. Um, 
yeah, I mean, the tools aren't any good if you haven't taken this time leading in to get used to them and know how to actually utilize them best. I've had my athletes run in the daytime with headlamps before, even though they obviously don't need them, but just because they have no opportunity to like put on that piece of gear for six or eight hours and you know that they're going overnight just to make sure it's comfortable. Like you can usually, you can look at the specs and determine if there's enough light and then maybe you're making a guess if they actually like the light pattern, right? That's the kind of leap of faith that you're making, but yeah, go out and run with your headlamp for a five or six hour long run at one in the afternoon. You might look like an idiot, but at least now, you know, you're not fumbling around with it. It's not like front heavy, right? Which is issue with a lot of, uh, mm. a lot of headlamps, especially if you haven't used them, uh, all that often it gets front heavy and starts banging you in the eyes. You don't want that happening during the race. Have you ever done anything else like that where, you know, they're not going to need to deploy and anybody can answer this. They're not going to need to deploy that piece of equipment during the training run, but you have them carry it or, you know, lug it around or whatever during the training run anyway. Poles for sure. Yeah. Like getting those in and out of a pack and, or just, I mean, you don't need poles for an hour run, but if it's a steep enough hill that you can actually practice with them, why not? I mean, just get so you're not even thinking about them anymore. Yeah. I haven't done the headlamp thing, but that's a, I've definitely had those morning runs where you only need it for 15 minutes, but then you've got to carry it around with you for the rest of the time. I was carrying around my poles constantly before uh, Tour de Giant, And I'd see like some local runners around here that I knew really well. And I'd be on some trail that I obviously didn't need poles on. They're like, what are you doing with your poles? Like, you don't need these out here. And I'm like, I'm practicing walking. So get off my case. <laughs> like pack weight, pack weight's like huge. Yeah, like my, yeah. I, I've had an athlete in MDS the last couple yes. of years. And like we, to get used to carrying the weight of the pack, like they were doing runs and workouts, not necessarily with their mandatory gear in the pack because a lot of it's food weight, but he would literally bring like, you know, he'd put bars of weight in his pack so that it was the right weight yeah. because, you know, and then we were trying to cut weight, you know, like how, how, how few, you know, kilograms are going into the pack type of thing, but getting used to that pack weight, even for races like UTMB with those mandatory kits or Cocodona or any of these two hundreds, like that's a huge component. Like, is your pack comfortable? Yeah. Who knows? And it takes time. I mean, we're talking about like, like what to do in the last like four to six weeks during a race. You have to realize that that's usually not a one shot. That's usually it's almost always not a one shot deal where you get your pack weight and distribution correct, uh, right, right from the get go. You have to kind of work on it. The second thing that I'll mention, I'll pass it back over to you, Andy, is that, uh, uh, it's becoming more and more common. I don't know if you guys have started to recognize this for the U S races to have mandatory kit and it's befuddled. I've seen this out on, out on courses before. It's kind of befuddled a lot of runners because it's something that they're not used to. And they're like, Oh, well, I've got to have a space blanket and where does it fit? And where do I have a whistle on my, uh, you know, on my pack? I had to give somebody the whistle off of my pack recently, uh, uh right before, right before a race. Cause this one runner didn't have him. They wouldn't let, let her check in. So anyway, I just think that that theme of having mandatory gear, which we're not used to here in North America, is going to start to become more and more common. And this 
this, this, this greater emphasis on training with all that stuff more consistently is going to be another, another theme. Andy, did you want to tack onto that? Yeah. Cause I, I, I'm going on the other side of the boat to this. I had a, I have an athlete training for a hundred. He's realized he's pretty fast and he's, he's not going to need a pack on race day. He's going to be able to go with handhelds <laughs> and never run with handhelds before he's run. You know, I was like, dude, you don't, you don't need them. The aid stations are five, six miles apart. You can just, so he went and did a 50 miler Orcas Island 50, pretty hard 50 up in the Northwest. And he used handhelds. It went great, but he was like, Andy, my, my shoulders and arms were killing me. <laughs> so I mean, so he's, so I was like, well, okay, dude, you're, you're going to have to go out on your daily one hour recovery runs with two handhelds. <laughs> so he's, <laughs> So he's similar, similar to the, to, to you running around, you know, with your poles when you don't need them, this guy's running with two handhelds filled with water, you know, for an hour run in the cold of Seattle. Yeah. Cause once again, I mean, <laughs> during, great. during your big training runs, right. You want to use a different kind of equipment setup. So, I mean, that makes all the sense and that makes all the sense of the world. A little bit rare to go the other direction though. Uh, old school, Andy using handhelds. <laughs> no, I had an athlete, I had an athlete who experienced that at Havelina a couple of years ago. Yeah. Like he was running with like the lead women and he was like i'm carrying so much stuff he's like i watched them blow through aid stations and it actually changed how he approached yeah. like w- different races like he'll do races like utmb and mogi on these really hard technical slow races but then he'll also do races like Cavalina, and you don't have to carry the same gear for those yeah. races so i think that's that's a great like you can go lighter you can remove the security blanket of the pack sometimes and take that bottle or whatever it is, which is pretty cool. Here's a good round Robin question. Maybe we can kind of like go around the room and answer this. At what point before the race, do you start to determine with your athletes, what equipment they are going to need during, during the race? My, I'll give you my window. I'll, I'll, I'll be the Guinea pig on this. Mine is about eight weeks. Like before that, I'm kind of like, man, we can figure it out, you know, at that point, maybe it's 12 weeks, but somewhere between that, you know, then that's a significant chunk of training right there. That's where I'm like, okay, this is the gear that you're going to use. Not that you use it every single day in training, but at least, you know, so then you have the time. If you need to buy a new pack, if you need to buy new shoes, you need to like get your gaiters sewn on for any of these like desert races and things like that. You're not like trying to shoehorn it. Uh, all pun intended into the last like two, two weeks of training. I've always just felt that that time frame gives me and gives the athlete enough time to like basically go on Amazon and buy stuff. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to put it. Like, cause you're going to have to like purchase some equipment. What do you guys think? What do you use with your athletes? I'd be about that time range too. Yeah. Though I would say too, like if people are scared of their race, you have to watch that there's not too much like last minute. What's going to make me finish this race? Like what are all the extra things I can get and shove in my pack? And like, I've had people um, decide that because of the weather, they were going to start the race wearing like an extra jacket and pants and things that they would never wear at that temperature on a normal day. And then they got too hot and, got kind of into a hole at the beginning. So some of it's making sure, like you said, um, starting that time out and not panic buying. 
I, I think <laughs> I, I think another advantage of it. I, I want AJW and Karen to jump in here too. I think another advantage of it is is for some races, if there's an anomalous section, like one that's really short or one that's really long, that's the that's what usually the more problematic situation. So every eight station is like two hours between eight stations, and then you've got one that's like eight, which that happens a lot in races. It forces you to think about that scenario. Like, am I going to change my gear? Do I have the opportunity to change my gear right before that? Or am I just going to go, do I have to go the entire time? And I have a, sometimes an empty pack is just as uncomfortable as a, as a heavy pack because it's meant to carry stuff. So Corinne, I don't know what your experience is with your athletes when you start to line that stuff up or not. I'd say probably generally not soon enough. I think <laughs> You're a procrastinator, a fair, procrastinator a by nature. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe it's me. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's all of us. I don't know. Um, I think so for races like UTMB, for example, or MDS, these races that are in, in air quotes here, like so extreme that you like have to have stuff dialed ahead of time, as opposed to like most US races where maybe there isn't a mandatory gear yeah, kit, yeah. that kind of thing. Like I'm working right now with all of my UTMB athletes on a lot of them are having to buy a new pack. Yeah, yeah. Right. And they're like, they're trying to acquire all their mandatory gear now so they can practice with that at some upcoming, like long weekends. Um, same with like MDS, like way in advance. And then I feel like sometimes we, okay, I'll say me or we get caught off guard, maybe too close to some races with, with, you know, that, that are in less of the extremes, just assuming that what we normally do is going to work. And that, that has definitely, probably caught myself or athletes off guard sometimes and in that or not we've had anomalous weather like at certain races like hellbender was horrendous recently like the weather there was the weather there is generally not good but it was really not good a couple weeks ago so i think it's like i don't know it's it's i would say i generally probably don't do it soon enough with particularly in regards to races that I have not deemed extreme, which does not mean that they're not extreme. It just, it means it's not MDS, UTMB, Western States or Badwater. But that's like, I should probably be thinking about this at other races as well. Okay. I'm going to call you out on this, Corinne. I know why you specifically, not you as a coach, but you as an athlete, leave it to the last minute. And this is the, this is a failure point of many, many, many elite athletes is you have so much crap from your sponsors. You think that you have everything. And you probably do, but you don't like use it actively or pack it actively during training. So then when the race goes around or when the race starts coming around, you're like, man, I got everything I need. Like, you know, I've got seven big boxes of stuff behind me in a whole It'll for, be fine. For the Adidas athletes, a whole five closets worth of coats because that's so like Adidas. <laughs> that's how, that's Adidas thing is they just give everybody copious amounts of jackets. But I see this with elite athletes a lot, is because they get so much gear. They fail to realize this is the gear that I'm actually going to need during the race. And I'm going to need to figure out how to carry this around, how to deploy it on race day. And they are typically the worst. They are the worst last minute people because you see them at UTMB. They're trying to like futz their jacket out of their, you know, pack because they've never done it before. And is this really that waterproof or not? Like, it's just hilarious. It's super light. It's yeah, super, no, my uh, my mandatory tights are definitely nylons with the feet cut off. So, <laughs> um, no, but I get that. I definitely was sewing a pack at Western States in 2019. The day, the day before, before the race, yeah, because so the packs that they sent didn't have the pocket I wanted. So classic. So I, but I have very specific wants. 
and that needs their very specific wants. And sometimes those do not come through. So honestly, like, yes, do I have copious amounts of jackets? Sure. Do I have a single t-shirt I can race in because I'm not a tank top person? No, no, because t-shirts are not part of our kits. And I would really like a t-shirt when I would really like shorts that have more than more than a three inch inseam. So Nobody, sponsored is fun. Yeah, let me so let not. me just say for the record, nobody should feel bad for the sponsorship athletes at that point or for the sponsored athletes at that point because it's their own undoing. We don't want to let you guys off the hook. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely our own fault. <laughs> All right, AJW. I, you know, I'm I'm in the I, I'm three months out, Coop. I'm gonna I'm gonna have yeah. them because I, I I'm a big fan and if if you have something if an athlete has something to to worry about and be stressed about they're going to be stressed about it. So the mm. sooner they can decide what gear they're going to use, what gear they're not going to use, when they're going to, even if it's an extreme race, right? An extreme race where it's 90 degrees during the day and 20 degrees at night, or where there's a chance of snow or UTMB is going to require their winter gear. Do get all that. If, you know, my UTMB athletes, they're doing that like Corinne's, they're doing that right now. My Western States athletes decided two months ago whether they were going to go pack handhelds or some version of both, right? Because let's keep in mind, you can swap these things out. You can, you were mentioning, you know, you can have five miles, five miles, five miles, and all of a sudden 12 miles between aid stations. You might, you might go handheld, handheld, held, held, then get your vest and go for the 12 mile section. So I'm, I'm more of a planner, certainly more of a planner than Corinne in this regard. And so I would say, you know, if you could talk to any of my Western States athletes and I'm drilling, I'm like, okay, what shoes, what socks, what, what, what headlamp, um, what, what packer handhelds or some mixture of both. I think I'm just a fan of that because it just re- removes the, the worry about that of sewing the night before or, Oh crap, I forgot this or whatever. I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big believer and advocate for not panicking the day or the week really of the race with all the stuff. Like if you can just chill, sit back, kick your feet up, you know, that all your equipment is in order, you know, that your crew right is in order and you don't have to stress about all that stuff. Great. And I know a number of you Corinne, might touch on this, but Andy and I've talked about this before have your crew meetings two, three, four days before the race, not the night of, because then everybody, what about this aid station? Do you, do you want the, you know, quesadillas folded in half or do you want them cut into thirds? You know, you shouldn't be worrying about that stuff at 10 PM on Friday night before a Saturday race, but that's what everybody wants to do because sometimes it's logistically, you know, the easiest thing to do. But if you really think about it, it's like, let's just get on a zoom call and do all this on Tuesday and then it's out of the way. You guys can come out to Olympic Valley and enjoy yourself or, you know, do whatever. Um, I did my crew meeting with my wife before Tour de Jaunt, like when I was in Chamonix the week before. So that way she got here. She could tour around Italy. We didn't have to worry about anything. Here's the one pizza place you need to go to. Done. So easy. I'd right. say to make sure you're actually reading the rules and the mandatory gear list. I have been the person doing the gear checks. And had people argue with me about it the day of and be like, I don't have gloves. I'm like, do you have an extra pair of socks? I'm not going to be picky about it (laughs) or arguing about nowhere did it say this race is cupless, even though it's listed in four different places. But like, just actually read the rules. Uh, Go go over it. (laughs) Read the rules in advance. Like usually when usually the way that the the races roll the runner's guide out, usually there's like a final version of it at some point, unless there's a fire or something like that, which tends to be all too common now. 
but read it right when it comes out, not the day or a couple days before the race and figure out that it's a coupleless race. Or you need to whistle, right? I was giving somebody a whistle the other day, just as I was mentioning. All right, Coach Corinne, you're up. What are your okay. athletes hearing from you right now? Yeah. So I AGW and I sat down and recorded an entire podcast about crewing. So I would just go listen to that. We're just not going to talk about it. All right. It. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, I think it's coming out right now. I okay. don't know. We'll talk to Corey. Um, so that's all about assembling an all-star crew. AJW is a wealth of knowledge on this. So it's really great. I would recommend anyone who is running or racing or crewing someone this year to listen to it because it's important that, you know, you know what you're getting yourself into. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is that, you know how, okay, let me set this up. You know how humans sometimes look like their dogs and vice versa. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're all on the same page yeah, here. I'm a dog person. We're okay. Dog people. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I think I've attracted a group of misfit toys into my own coaching stable because I myself am a misfit <laughs> I've heard toy. other coaches say this. Um, I don't know. Wait, about me or about them? No, I've heard other, no, I've heard other coaches say the exact same thing that they yeah. attract whatever athletes that they are like, or they are, their athletes take on their own behaviors, which is natural. Right. And I mean, like yeah. attracts like, yeah. So I currently am coaching, not everyone. I'm going to have athletes listen to this and be like, am I a misfit toy? No, not everyone in my cohort is a misfit toy. <laughs> I was about but... to say, hold on. You need to clarify this a little bit. Your athletes are going yeah, so, to listen to this. Corinne, you might want to shut off your phone when this comes out. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, see about that. So, but I do, I have, so obviously I was out all of last year before that we had the pandemic. Um, I was injured. I've got a lot of athletes coming off of various things who have medical conditions that have come up, who have had a hard time professionally or personally, who maybe they've missed time. Maybe they had a baby, which is great. We love babies, but like they haven't raced in a while and they're lining up for like a big A race. And so I've got all these athletes and I fall into this camp too, who are struggling with comparison and it's not comparison to Jim mm. Walmsley or Courtney DeWalter or whomever it's comparison to the runner they were two years ago or three years ago. I, I don't know if the pandemic aged us all and we're like just realizing that we've all gotten older, but I feel like that is the boat of a, uh, the boat that a lot of my athletes are in, that we're stuck in the cruelest form of comparison, the comparison to the runner we think we are supposed to be or the runner that we were most recently. And it's putting athletes in like this funky headspace going into races of, you know, thinking that they should be running something faster, being uncomfortable, being mid pack or back of pack or chasing cutoffs. And it's, so I feel like while, while we're doing all this training and needing to do the training, it's a lot of like the mental headspace stuff mm -hmm. too, of being like, you know, you have to take it a day at a time, right? Like you got to run the mile you're in. You have to take the take training a day at a time. Like I'm thinking about the big picture for you. We're going to be opportunistic, but you have to stay in the moment in the day. Because if you worry that this workout was horrible today and we, we dwell on it for the next four days, that doesn't serve us either. And so I feel like while I'm not a therapist and people should just see therapists in general, um, I feel like there's a lot of that going on in training logs right now of, you know, like we got to stay in the moment. We got to run the mile we're in. We got to take this one day at a time um, because we are getting caught up or for some reason, my, I've got a cohort of athletes caught up in kind of this, this comparison loop that's so vicious. Mm. And so we're working through that right now in a big way. How, so you recently went through that yourself at Madeira. Can you yeah. talk about that? Like just personally in a way that a lot of athletes can also learn from. 
Yeah. Like Madeira for me, I like, I read about this recently and I said, I'm not speaking in cliches, like getting to the start line was huge and getting to the finish line. What like totally was a victory. Um, like I was so happy with that performance, even though, you know, I was, I don't know, four hours behind Courtney or something. Um, but I think that in the year, two years going into that race, like there was a lot of doubt that crept in, right? Like, am I going to like running? Am I going to enjoy ultra running again? Can I run ultras again? Is it going to bum me out if I'm not as competitive? Um, what are my expectations for myself? Like I had to go through all of that. And what I found too was truly like the day by day thing was so important, but also just like going in without expectations, like going in just to, just to do the run. Like I did not feel like a veteran at all. I felt like a total rookie on the start line and I've definitely made some rookie mistakes um, as well, but I had to go in without expectation because I had to put the ego aside because it was going to be a really long run if I spent 18 and a half hours or whatever it was like beating myself up for not being faster. So I had to go in ego aside. I don't want to say I had to put my competitive ambitions on the back burner because that's like hard for anyone to do, but I had to just be in every single moment and not worry about place or time or, you know, feeling like there were external expectations for my own race. I had to know, I had to lean into like what my, like what I needed out of the race versus what I thought anyone else needed from me in the race. That's not easy to do when you've been, I I mentioned this to elite athletes all the time. It's that's not easy to do when you've been to the top of the mountain, like when you've been really good and you've been on fire and everyday athletes can, you know, relate to this as well. When you've been that person, irrespective of how long it was ago, it could have been six months ago. It could have been six years ago. It could have been 16 years ago it's, it's, it's hard to come back to that level that you just mentioned, Corinne, where you want to respect the training that you have done for that specific thing. And that alone has to drive the process and the value that you get out of the entirety of it. And I think a lot of athletes are going through that right now, just post COVID, just because they haven't raced in a while. You know, they're coming behind, they're behind the eight ball for a myriad of reasons, right? Your, yours specifically was compounded by injury. But there's a lot of other athletes out there that just, you know, they just didn't train that much over the past couple of years. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you got to realize that that's where that's what you're coming to the table with. Yeah. Or athletes who maybe they were able to train a lot over the pandemic because their job went remote. Yeah. But I've got athletes who are going back to the office who are traveling for work again. Right. Like, <laughs> oh my God, I got to work like now. That. <laughs> yeah. That have, that have to go to the office, that have to go commute again, who have to, you know, go to Boston or DC or wherever they yeah. need to go to like do these work meetings. Right. And that I think is also throwing athletes for a loop because we, not to say we're backtracking on training, but we do have to like, we have to adjust to whatever their current reality is. And I think that that has been really hard for athletes who are stepping up to big races to be yeah. like, well, my training looks different this spring than I did last spring. I'm like, yeah, you had different life stresses last spring than you do this spring. And I think that's true. You can, I like, I don't know, people get really hung up on this idea of like their peak week has to be X, their long yes. runs have to be Y or Z their, you know, they need to do this specific training race. And if any of those things do not happen, how could they possibly do the race successfully? And I've had athletes and I've had and myself included in this, have had, have gone back to the same race year after year with very different training and things turn out just about the same or better. And so I think it's important to recognize that like what you were able to do in one season or one buildup might not look the same. Like once again, comparison to yourself the next season, because 
Maybe you've added a new family member. Maybe you're traveling more for work. Maybe work changed altogether. Like all those things are super important and are stressors. And so you have, you can't, you can't expect things to stay the same. Well, I, it, I think, I think one of the best things about this sport long distance ultra running is we don't, we really don't ever have to retire. I mean, uh, I, I, I pound on this a lot. There are a lot of athletes who were elite and they're not elite anymore. And so they're not entering races. And to them, I'd say, come on, come run races, you know, get a, get a sense of what it's like in the mid pack. I remember when it happened to me, it happened pretty suddenly where I went from being sort of in the top 20% of races to being in the mid pack. And, and when I really realized it is when I looked at an aid station and I said, this is what a picked over aid station looks like. <laughs> You know, I had, I had never, I had, I had always been to aid stations where like they had just filled up the cups with the M&Ms and all the sandwiches were fresh and everything else. And one day I get there and it's like a picked over aid station with, with aid station volunteers asleep on the cots. And I was like, ah, ha, this is what I've been missing. <laughs> but I really, I really, really, really do believe uh, Corinne's got such a great point. You have to change your mindset. You, you, you can't compare. I mean, this is what I hate about Strava. I get these updates about, you know, someone who beat my, um, you know, beat my, my, my segment somewhere. And I was like, Oh my God, that was like 12 years ago. <laughs> That's not me anymore. But, but I think it is important if we want to continue to stay in the sport to constantly readjust our goals. And I think it's been, I think it's been accelerated by COVID, right? Because people have been out of the sport, not by any desire of their own. And then they're like coming back and it's like, Whoa, it's different now. Uh, it's different for me. It's different for them. And how am I going to, how am I going to function in that? So I think, I think we need to remember, we all do this cause we love it. And that's what makes it the most meaningful to us. Uh, not I, winning, not having boxes full of Adidas jackets. I mean, I, I said for years, you know, eventually I'm going to have to buy my own shoes again. <laughs> you know, eventually Corinne's going to have to buy her own jackets. <laughs> I don't know. And that's okay. Oh, I've got jackets for years. I was about to say. <laughs> I've got Corinne, them cashed away. Corinne's going to have jackets until she's like an old grandma. That's right. Um, I, I can tell, I can tell a humble experience just from being a coach as long as I as I have been I've made more mistakes coaching through the failure to realize that people are different from year to year to year that's that by far has been one of my if not my biggest source of coaching error and even with young athletes even with athletes that are in their mid-20s or early 30s not recognizing that they're a different athlete from year to year to year in whatever way, either from a work-life perspective or just an athletic perspective. And the way that that manifests in like the coaches, coaching X's and O's is that you're not adapting to the individual nature of that person. That person is a different individual in 2022 than they were in 2021 than they were in 2020. And sometimes that's subtle. You know, you don't change all that much. Sometimes it's a lot. And as Andy, you mentioned, right, you went through a very drastic change from one year to the next. And if you were to have just copy pasted your training from, you know, the early two thousands, that would certainly be a failure point in you trying to like figure out uh, your, your, your own training. So, you know, message to the athletes that are out there, irrespective of your, whether you're DIYing your own training, or you've got a coach, you're a different person from year to year and your training needs to be reflective of that in the same way that it's reflective of the different nature of the events that you're training for, right? You need to individualize for both of those, 
both of those components. I think that's a really important part. I'm glad you have the mid state, the mid pack aid station story now, Andy, to tell that everybody can relate to. You're a common folk, just like everybody. Okay, so I've got two things. First one, the first one's the easiest one, so I'll I'll tackle that right off the bat. First one, don't get COVID. Seriously. So I I traveled this weekend. I flew on a plane for the first time in a while, and the first time since they lifted all the mask mandates. And I'm not going to get political about any about about anything like that. But still, I think not getting COVID is an athlete's biggest ergogenic aid right now. Outside of whatever other recovery modalities you want to use and nutritional supplements and things like that, if you just avoid the negative of not getting COVID in the last six weeks leading up to your race, and I've had athletes recently that have that have gone through this and it's getting, we'll figure it out, but it, it's problematic. Don't get COVID, especially if you travel a lot for work and especially if you're in like a high risk environment, still treat it like the freaking pandemic is raging. Just because everybody else is letting their guard down doesn't mean that you need to let your guard down. That's the only soapbox that I'll get on with this particular thing. So that's number one. Don't get COVID leading your race. And you can you can do things. Every every individual out there has worked so freaking hard to get to whatever race they're doing. Think about it. All the hours of training, hundreds, hundreds of hours of training that you put in for a singular race. Take a little bit of precaution to not getting sick. And I would give that advice to anybody, even outside of the pandemic. We used to tell this to athletes that went to the Olympics all the time, carry your own pens, stay away from sick people, wash your hands all the time. Like we just say, we were saying this in like for forever when athletes would travel around internationally, because we realized that getting sick unwinds unnecessarily in many cases, a lot of the hard earned training that, that, that you've done. So first thing, don't get sick, don't get COVID. Second thing is as you're mapping out your last six or eight weeks of training, fight the urge to do your hardest bout or your longest bout of training right at the very end. And some, I forget who just mentioned this. I think it was you, Corinne. Everybody wants to think that if they do some magic combination of back-to-back long runs or one single long run or three days in a row or kind of whatever that that makes them ready. And there's something to that, right? There's something to getting the confidence to doing all those miles and stuff like that. But when you're looking at your last part of training, put that in the most strategic place possible. And in almost all cases, it shouldn't be right before your taper week. If you're doing the biggest volume of training, your biggest acute volume of training right before your taper week, you could be making, could be, and many times you are making the classic mistake of having your highest acute training load coincide with your highest chronic training load. And you could get away with that. You might, you might be able to get away with that and it might be a benefit and we can, you know, debate that or or whatever. But in most cases, that's going to be too much or counterproductive or kind of extend your taper or have some other sort of negative consequence. So what I would encourage athletes to do is whatever magic you think is going to come about from those two or three days, your training camp or whatever, give yourself enough time to do that and then fall back into normal training 
so that you're not trying to shoehorn it in all at the very end. And everybody, wa- I've made that mistake. I've made that mistake personally, like a dozen. I used to go on a Leadville Trail 100. I had a 50 mile run like right before the taper. And finally, when I look back at my training, thanks to my fellow coaches, they'd be like, you're an idiot. You're doing the longest, you're doing your longest training run right at the very end. Like how dumb is that? Like you should, you should be smarter than this. So anyway, that for the athletes that are out there, that especially the ones that are kind of DIY in their training, be, you always want to do something to kind of crescendo your training. Be sure that it's not all at the very, very, very end and give yourself enough space to do that big block of training such that it's not going to have any residual coming into the race. So that's what I'm going through with, with my athletes, particularly that are racing in like the July and August timeframe. We're trying to orchestrate when the training camps that Andy mentioned, when the training camps would typically occur for those athletes. And I'm just trying to give them as much space as possible. Yeah. I think that I've kind of looked at that as like, I don't like necessarily like, like a long taper, but it's kind of like it, we start the taper and it's this kind of gradual thing. Like I'm a big fan of really big weeks, like three weeks out, five weeks out, that kind of thing with even like yeah. kind of a, like that, that, um, that three, four and five week out window is kind of like a little block. And then they still have a long run the following weekend yeah. after that third week, after that three week out mark. And then it's kind of like, you still have like, 12, you know, you still have two weeks after that in a way that's like the true, like quote unquote taper. Yeah. I just think I see this time and time again, and it just happens all too often. I think with self-coached athletes where they think that every week kind of builds off of each other naturally. Right. But it's actually the opposite, right? You get more fatigued as the weeks go on and then you remove the stress and then you become less fatigued. So when it, whenever I see that, I kind of, I, I see it enough to understand that you can get away with it because the longest single training run that you're going to do, or the longest single training block that you're going to do is typically at a relatively low intensity. So sometimes you can get away with that mismatch of having, you know, all the cumulative stress and all the acute stress being at the same time. You couldn't get away with it. If there was a lot of intensity in there, that would definitely be a huge red flag. But sometimes you can get away with it when it's all low intensity. But I just think that there's a better way to orchestrate it. And plus, here's the other thing I just thought about. What if that run goes wrong? Yeah, what if it's mentally or physically, right? right. Like if it's a huge risk. Like I've had this conversation with the athletes recently too about like practice races as well as like, like because they want, they've got a B race on the, on the calendar. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, and they'll be like, is the timing wrong on this? And I'm like, yeah, I'd be more keen if that was a week earlier. Right. Like, cause if, if for some reason, you know, it does go wrong, you do tweak something. Like I want enough time for you to come out of this type of thing. And I feel like if you do a 50 mile training run two weeks out from Leadville, right. Like that's just the, the amount of risk to like the risk reward ratio there is way off. Yeah. I think it's, I, I, I think it's kind of playing with fire, you know, because once again, physically, you got to get it right. Psychologically, you got to get it right. And there's no, if you're doing it, here's, we talked about this earlier in, in the podcast. I think it's great that it's coming back full, full circle right now. If you're using those longer, long runs to go through your nutrition go through your equipment and all these other things, now you don't have as much time to course correct right and so you've compounded all of these errors like all at once like just that that that's my message is just give yourself a little bit of space right so that 
a you don't feel like you're pressing the whole time and i think that that just makes the training more reasonable when people are setting it up if you just give yourself more time and more space but b if you want to change something if you want to try to tweak something or optimize you're not under this like huge time pressure to do it in the last two weeks where you know you might make compounding errors and you know, change your shoes at the last minute or go on a three hour run because you want to test your new socks out or something like that. Yeah. You don't have enough time to course correct any of those things that you're quote unquote trying out for the first time. Like that, that should be happening on those big weekends, those big runs, seven, nine, 12 weeks out type of thing, getting like lots of time to make those changes and those tweaks as opposed to, yeah, your last run before the big day. Yeah. Here, here's so I had a lot of questions about this. I'll answer this in podcast format. And I've been trying not to, I've been trying to do less and less of this this year. Just talk about my own training, but I think this is a decent segue. So for Cocodona, I did a four day training block about a month out from the right. I'm looking at it right now. I'm trying to count the days. Yeah. About a month out from the event. And then the week after that, I basically took that training block and I cut it into two days. So once again, the highest acute block was four weeks out. It was coming kind of right off of a little recovery phase, but I didn't increase it the next week. I literally like cut it in half. And the week after that, I cut that in half. So I could make, and this kind of all went out the window because of the fire situation, but that's neither, that's neither here nor there. If I needed to make any sort of like, you know, equipment changes, or I like overcooked myself, you know, during those four days or whatever, I had enough time to like even back off more in the subsequent weeks, that's the other thing that I think that's dangerous about leaving the last thing until the very end is you're always guessing a little bit, right? In training, you try to make the most educated guess possible in terms of training load or training volume, but it's still a guess. And even if you're a super experienced coach, you know, we're all experienced, really good coaches here. You can still get that equation wrong. You can still do a little bit too much or not do, you know, or not do enough and when you're and when you have more time to course correct, right? It's just a better situation because you can course correct in either direction. If you did a little bit too much, you're a little bit over fatigued, you can course correct on the on the doing less the next week. And then if for whatever for whatever reason, if you don't feel like you got enough out of that last long block, you can titrate up a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that. And then all that, all that training stress just kind of ends up coming out in the wash, but the catalyst for it coming out in the wash is giving enough space so that you have the time later down the road and you're not trying to freaking shoehorn everything <laughs> at the very last minute. Like we've been talking about this entire time. Well, I'm not putting like too much emphasis on that one big thing. run. Like I just got my first DNF at, quad rock 50 not because i couldn't make the cutoffs but because it wasn't my a race and i was behind goal it was hot i didn't want to be out there anymore and 10 more miles of beating myself up just didn't feel worth the risk anymore and i felt like i got what i needed out of it and so i called it a day and i don't think that means i'm suddenly gonna have a horrible hundred miler in a month because i dnf this one race yeah, I just had the same conversation with an athlete. Like, and it was it was quad rock, and it was really hot. It was the hottest day I think y'all have had. Like, I think that Colorado's had this spring, at least the like Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver area. And yeah, same thing. Like B race, 
you know, big goals are down, down the road. The goal was to go in and just like kind of test things out in part because we were working through a knee thing and, you know, the knee held up, which was great, but there was no reason to kind of be out there longer. So it's like exact same thing and having to have that conversation of like, okay, well, you know, going into a race with the mindset of like, if I need to drop, I can type of thing, I think was really hard on this athlete, but also recognizing that like, this has no, this, this has no, like future, like forward looking negative implication for your ability to complete the big goal coming up. Like you made the right decision on the day. And I think that's what athletes have to hear a lot is like, you know, that was the right decision. And this is not an indicator of your ability to complete the a race or the a goal that's coming up. And I think that that is a really, that, that once again, is like that risky line with, you know, these big long runs or these big long training races is that like, you might have to have that conversation at the backside of like, did we accomplish what we wanted to accomplish with it? Even if it wasn't, you know, a 50 mile finish, like, yeah, hundred percent. And I think that's like what needs to resonate with an athlete it needs to resonate with your own, your own experience at a quad rock mm-hmm. too. Is like, Nope, we got what exactly what we needed out of it. Perfect. Okay. Now we're ready for the hundred. You, you guys have heard me, <clears throat> you guys have heard me opine on this in any kind of number of formats. You know, the most common question that I get from the running public at large is, is what should my longest long run be for X case? And I, you know, I've answered that in any number of ways from trying to be cheeky about it to like technical and so on and so forth. But what I've come to, what I've really come to appreciate about the frequency that that question uh, comes up is it really, it really illuminates the athlete's psychology that there's some magic litmus test that if they pass that in training, they therefore are qualified to do the race. And it's, it's kind of reminiscent of like really old school marathon training where, you know, pretty much any marathon training book out there or training program that you see will use an 18 mile long run. And it's so common. It's almost de facto, right? So athletes go into those things. They're like, okay, if I can do 18 miles, I only have eight to go. Eight is a normal run. And so now I've passed this, you know, I've passed this magic, you know, I've passed this magic test in training and I'm automatically qualified for it. Well, the fact of the matter is, is if your freaking last long run was 17 miles or 16 miles, that two miles in the entirety of all of the hours, the hundreds of hours that you've trained for that race is such a small fraction that from a physical standpoint, it's, it's really not all that meaningful. But when we look at it into an ultra marathon world, because the distance is so audacious and the duration is so audacious, it puts a bigger magnifying glass on the, those, those types of litmus tests. And I think once we realize that, yes, there are benefits to long runs, right? Yes, there are benefits to back back to back long runs, but there's no magic in eclipsing a certain duration or a certain distance that therefore is it like a you know, an automatic kind of, kind of prerequisite into things. And to Corinne, your point of it's okay if you, you know, drop out, uh, you know, in this race, it really speaks to understanding the context of the entirety of the training process that enables you to have that scope, right? If you didn't have context of the entirety of the training process, you might think that 50 miles is some sort of magical prerequisite, not 45 miles, 50 miles exactly is some sort of magic prerequisite to being successful at the ultra marathon distance. And that's just unfortunate, not unfortunately, but that's just not, it's just not the case. And I think it's psychology that we've got to kind of work on with everybody. 
Well, and I think like you get to a point where you're tired and I think, especially if you're new to a distance, you think, Oh, if I'm this tired at four hours, how am I going to feel it? eight hours and sometimes I don't know like not that you can't keep getting more tired but I feel like there's a point where you're tired and you just stay that amount of tired and you just kind of (laughs) fit into that groove and it's not you're not going to suddenly necessarily be in agony at mile 70 Mm. like like unless something's going wrong like and so getting that experience in a long run, it's not necessarily you're the amount of time you're tolerating it, it increases, but you're not necessarily getting some big I, new stimulus. I literally had that conversation before we jumped on this podcast with an athlete who's doing Leadville. This is his first hundred mile race. And he did a 22 mile long run, two, 22 mile long runs uh, over the weekend. He was like, my legs hurt so bad after the second one's like, am I going to have to go 80 more miles with my legs feeling that bad? And to be honest with you, I gave him the spiel from the book, right? So I wrote about this in the book, how we are, we are really terrible at extrapolating past a certain time frame. There's this, there's this construct within the psychobiological model of fatigue called the perceived exertion endpoint interaction. And I know that sounds like a lot of psychobabble, but it's, it's literally, it's literally how it's described is that when we, when you're doing a task, when an endurance athlete is doing a normal task, they're going out and running 10 K they're doing intervals or whatever. <clears throat> We're pretty good at running to a certain point and then taking an internal check of this is how I feel. This is how much I'm suffering. This is how much I'm willing to suffer. And this is how much further I have to go, or this is the time frame I have to go and drawing an internal line and saying, okay, that's reasonable. I'm going at a reasonable intensity, or you know what? I'm not willing to suffer that much six minutes from now. So I'm going to dial my intensity back down. We're very, very good at that process for short durations under a couple of hours. We suck at it in an ultra marathon distance. And that's why people drop out at mile 75 of the Leadville Trail 100 because they feel so horrible. And they're like, I can't possibly endure this much more pain for 25 more miles going up power line and things like that. They get in their car, they go to their hotel room and they immediately regret what they do. It's not a failure for them being tough because they got to that point. They were certainly tough enough to get to that point. It's a failure of trying to extrapolate how they were feeling at that moment in time and, and, and trying to extrapolate that to the finish line, which we are just really, really, really awful at. I have this distinct memory from our training run before Leadville and it wasn't like a big long run. So Leadville was my first hundred in 2017. I remember this. And, uh, I remember getting in and I was supposed to do CCC that year as well. And I was like, I've got to choose just Leadville. Um, but I went out for a training run. It was like an eight mile training run and it was a loop. Like there's no way to cut the loop. It's, it's a, it's a loop and it, it, the loop itself is six miles. And I was planning to add on and I felt horrible. I mentally wasn't in it. And I just remember panicking. Like I can't even do an eight mile run. How the heck? am I going to run a hundred miles in two weeks? Like this, like this distinct panic over this, like the fact that I like could not bring myself 
to run eight miles. And so I think it's just, it's this very interesting phenomenon that like we've all, we've probably all experienced, right. Of being able to like understand what we're going through in that moment and extrapolate it out. And it's just like, it's, it's, I want people like in my mind, like that's the, like, this happens to everyone's story um, of being like, you can be caught in an easy day and have the same, the same feeling. It doesn't, and it's not an indicator of future failure by any means. You know, it's so funny. I can't tell you how many times I've been at an aid station <clears throat> where I've seen athletes come in and go, what mile is this? And they, they like, literally, they don't know. No idea. Yeah. They know, no clue. 30 miles, 80 miles. It's like totally indifferent. What, what mile is this? Like, where's the next aid station or whatever. And they okay. end up being super successful. And for years, I was miffed at that proposition. I'm like, how do you not know that you're 22 miles into this race? Like, like, how, did you not do your research? Do you not have like a little cue sheet or whatever? And finally, after you know maturing a little bit, I guess I've just come to I've just come to appreciate that the fact that they didn't care or even have the sense of how much further it was to go was the ultimate catalyst for them being successful because they weren't making that extrapolation because they couldn't, they didn't have the faculty or the tools or whatever. They didn't care, whatever it was. They knew they were fit enough to do it. They knew they were well on the cutoffs and all these other things. But the fact that, that, that they didn't know literally where they were in the race was so befuddling to me. But now I've come to appreciate that. You know what? That's not the worst thing in the world because you're not thinking about 50 miles from now, which is kind of weird to think about. You can't, you can't count down. You can't, you, you can't, you can't internalize that. We were really cognizant of that with Tim out on the PCT. Like, I think that those, those types of like, uh, really long efforts, you know, like few hundred miles, 700 miles in Tim's case, a couple thousand miles, 2,600 miles. Like those really emphasize the fact that you can only plan out so much further in advance before it starts to become a detriment to yourself that you just, this whole cliche of staying in the here and now, which I always say you stay in the here and now, but you have to have a reasonable amount of forethought. I think that's a, there's a balance point there. But anyway, my point with that is, is this whole notion of we suck at extrapolating really gets exaggerated as the distance kind of goes on with these 200 milers and FKTs and, and things like that, because it's just the proposition is so absurd. We can't internally comprehend what's going to happen that far down the road. That's why mile 60 to 80, I think is like the worst of any hundred. And you could probably figure out what that is for yeah. 200. For example, it's like, if someone's going to drop out, it's going to be between mile 60 and mile 80. Yeah. Cause you've run so far and you still have so far to go, particularly when you're cognizant of how far you have to go. And so it's like, when I talk to people who are pacing like Western States, for example, I'm like mile 60 to 80, your job is to distract them. Yeah, your exactly. job is to make sure that they just blast through 20 miles without thinking. And then once they get to 80, it's like, Oh, we've all done a 20 mile run. Right. Same with like the 18 mile thing. Like, Oh, we've, we've, we all know what that is like counting down finally type of thing. And so it's like, yeah, you can't really extrapolate that, but it's, yeah, it's that crux of like that 60 to 80%, I guess is maybe what it is. Like you've been out for so, so long, but you can't quite figure out how far you have to go still. Well, the research backs that up and I can't remember the name of the author right now. I'll link the paper in the, in, in the show notes. The research backs that up and it also happens to coincide with kind of the worst time early in the morning for most reasonable runners, not elite athletes, obviously, but for most people that are running kind of in the middle of the pack of where it's right around two to 4 a.m., you know, for a morning start type of race. And so you've got this confluence 
of all of these negative events. They've been out for a long period of time. They're coming around to the prototypical witching hour, which has biological significance around it as well, right around two or four in the morning. And they, you know, they've got 60 or 80 miles underneath their legs and underneath their minds. And sometimes the, the, that confluence events is just too, you know, it's just too much for, uh, uh, for, for, for people to handle. But Karen, your point is actually really well taken where there tends to be like a, kind of a linchpin. And I actually think that we're like going down a crazy rabbit hole here. I actually think that athletes are really well served to know that by like looking at the race and coaches too, looking at the race results from years previous and figuring out where the failure points are. This isn't like not indifferent from any, you know, scope of training type of activity that we would go with our athletes, but looking at a race and I always bring up Leadville because it's so apparent and saying everybody drops out at, at outward bound. Right. There's more, there's more DNFs there than at any other point in the course. If you know that, and then you get your crew on board and you get your pacers on board and whatever other resources that you have, lock the car. Don't let me get in the car at miles anywhere else. You can let me get in the car. Don't let me get in the car here. Just drive the car away. Right. Which is what people have done there before. Like just drive away. Don't let, don't give me the, don't, don't give me the option. If you know where those more common failure points are, they're there for a reason is what I'm trying to say, right? There's usually a biological reason for it. There's a physiological reason for it and a psychological reason uh, for for why those all happen to occur right around the same time or the majority of them occur around the same time. And you can use that knowledge and leverage it for your everyday athletes to be more successful and just by avoiding those pitfalls, right? Because as we know, Corinne's very famous for saying, a lot of uh, ultramarathon training and racing success is just terrain trap avoidance, right? You're just trying to avoid the negative and then you just find, you know, the very stereotypical and cliche success by lack of failure. I want to just point out that was an, that was an edit in the book that <laughs> I had to fight for. What are terrain traps? I'm like, welcome to Avi, Avalanche Education yeah. 101, where these are things we're going to avoid. Um, yeah, people, I mean, that's why like people know that the first 50K of High Lonesome is so hard. That's why people know that you've got to get your athlete out of Cormier at yes. UTMB. Like there are very specific places two in the morning, where it's right? yeah, two in the morning or, or later, or it's like, you've already had a hard 50 miles and you yeah. can't imagine going 50 more miles. Yeah. I called you during yeah. UTMB cause you were the one number I could get a hold of yeah. when you was awake at that time of day to just tell me to get to the next aid station. And that's like, sometimes all it is, right. It's just yeah. like, just go to the next aid station. Just, we'll see you at the next aid station. Just keep moving. And generally that's enough, I think, to get you down the road. So we'll add that to our list that we are our very illustrious list of what athletes should be looking at right now. If you're in the mid pack or the back of the pack, look at where people drop out, identify that point and bring your reinforcements to that point, right? Bring your psychological reinforcements to that point, knowing that you're going to go through that at that point in time, or you're likely to go through that, that point at that time but bring your crew in, tell them that that's a prototypical failure, failure point. If you happen to have pacers, let them know about that as well. Bring the Red Bull and frigging coffee and chocolate covered espresso beans and kind of all the, you know, uh, all of the, uh, all, all of those little tricks to, to stimulate uh, yourself through those wee hours of the morning or whatever. I, I think that that's another point that we can add to this list in terms of what to be looking at in this last six weeks or what are the potential failure points of the race? Yeah. It's like Western States where your crew sees you at the top of a big uphill 
at like every major crewing point. And it's like, yeah, your runner's probably going to look bad and maybe unhappy because they've been going uphill for an hour and it's warm out. So like maybe now don't ask them how they're doing yeah. and like put some ice on them and then just make them go run down the next downhill yeah. and things will be better. Everybody so. looks this bad up here. Yeah. Everyone looks horrible up here. You're doing great. Yeah. There are. Yeah. I think that can go for anyone for the front of the pack to the back of the pack, as far as like knowing where those key moments are that are going to be really hard and prepare yourself, prepare your crew, know what your goals are, right? Like my UTMB experience was one where I wasn't prepared to be out there for 30 hours mentally. I knew exactly what I wanted to run. And when I was super sick and was walking a lot, like I wasn't mentally prepared to be, I could have walked it in for sure. Well under cutoffs, but I like wasn't mentally prepared to do that. So you've got to figure out those, those plan B's and C's and what you actually want out of it beyond being under X, Y, or Z time or, X, Y, or Z place because not that's not going to happen every time. You have to know why why you're out there otherwise. People don't appreciate how hard that reset is in real time. Like, because I've seen a lot, you know, I go to a lot of races. You guys know that. Um, I've seen a lot of athletes that have had to go through that. Well, I wanted to be here and now I'm here. Reset. And sometimes it's like, just give them 20 minutes at aid station. You know, I, I watched you give a, give a friend of a friend a pep talk at CCC one year in which you said, okay, you feel bad. Okay. Like are like, you're not doing well. And the guy was like, no, yeah, I'm just not doing well. And he, and you were like, to whose standards, to your standards yeah. or to someone else's standards. Yeah. And he was like, to my standards. And you're like, okay, well that's just like, you got to decide if you're going to get over that or not. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, he what, was otherwise fine, but he wasn't willing to like reset. Yeah. So that's what it needs. Yeah. And so like I've, my approach with that, this is once again, we're going to end up with a four hour podcast here. My approach to that is just give them space. They've got to make the decision, but you have to like arm them with what they don't know at that point. And usually what they don't know at that point is like they're so hyper-focused on what just eluded them, the time that just eluded them, the place that just eluded them or whatever, that if they really wanted to, they could walk to the finish line and they could do what Andy just, what AJW just mentioned, enjoy the picked over aid stations and making new friends and, you know, the locomoting at a different speed and seeing a course at a different time of day and stuff like that. And if you can get your head around that, it's that that's not, the experience that you thought you were going to have, but it's the experience that you are going to have now because of whatever the situation is. If you can kind of like get over that, most people are so incredibly grateful after the end of that, that they, you know, were 10 hours behind what they thought they were going to be or kind of whatever it is. I've, I've always found a lot of meaning in that, but I think that the, the, the common catalyst, and I haven't always been successful at this, the common catalyst has always been just give a lot of space, especially for people who have the space, they're not pushing the cutoffs or whatever, sitting down at an aid station for 20 or 30 minutes, just to like get your head wrapped around your new experience that you're going to have. That's usually 20 or 30 minutes well spent. As you know, you can kind of like make that up over the course of the next, you know, 30 or 20 miles or whatever it is. That time doesn't simply evaporate. You usually get in a better mood. That's enough of a rabbit hole. Y'all have been good sports about this. Um, thank everybody for uh, coming on the podcast today. I hope the athletes uh, that are listening out there now have at least a few things that they can put on their punch list in the last six or eight weeks leading up into a race. It is getting that time of year right now. My 
uh, driving calendar with my van is now currently packed for like the next eight weeks. So I'm super excited about it. I'm super excited to see y'all out at some races as well this year. It's race season. And if you're one of my athletes listening to this, uh, hit me up. We'll talk about the gear that we haven't talked about yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Michelle, you have a, you have any, uh, messages for your athletes that are listening to this? Oh, I think basically the same thing. (laughs) Don't make the mistakes that I'm making. (laughs) Right. Listen listen to everything I just did wrong. Hey, yeah. All right. Thanks to both of you guys. I appreciate it. Andy had to jump off a little bit early. Thanks to Andy in retrospect. This is really fun. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to coaches AJW, Krim Malcolm, and Michelle Foster for coming on the podcast today. I could do this format for forever. I mean, I really have a good time talking to those folks, and we actually have a coaching continuing ed going on right after I get done recording this outro, and I can't wait to talk to them again about something right then and there. I think we're going over an athlete schedule review or something like that. I hope that this podcast provides a little bit of a peek into the window of what our coaching practices are like, because I do feel like pulling back the curtain a little bit is extremely enlightening for the athletes and the audience out there. And I hope that all of you that are preparing for the races are not only thinking about your longest long run, like we talked on the podcast, but also about some of the other things that you can do to enhance your race experience and take advantage of all of the training that you have done throughout the entirety of the process. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners out there. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.